As a pastoral counselor, my mission is to make known how the gospel addresses and heals trauma, the leading symptoms of which, of course, are codependence and addiction. Now, uh, the problem is, is that we have to make sure that we have the gospel. And given the fact that the world is filled with alternative gospels, or other gospels, as the Apostle Paul would say it, the first step in any kind of recovery for a family or an individual uh, recovering from uh, the developmental or uh, event trauma, complex trauma, codependence, addiction, and so on, is to ensure that we are, are presenting a life-giving gospel. That is to say, the apostolic gospel as revealed and preserved for us within the pages of the New Testament and indeed throughout the pages of Scripture as a whole. Um, what we don't want to do and what will be futile is to present to people who are broken and hurting and suffering some kind of a gospel that is contrived, that is pared down, that is uh, minimized and loaded down with man-made traditions. I've been around the block now for 40 years. I've seen this happen. I've seen the futility of it. I've seen how that man-made traditions being passed off as the gospel does nothing. In fact, if it only did nothing, it would be one thing. But man-made tradition being passed off as the gospel actually only makes uh, the human condition worse. In fact, what it often does is it locks people into some state of delusion that they are, in fact, uh, something they are not. So this is a very serious proposition. So in this new series we're starting here, we're going to be looking at uh, the nature of worship, which, of course, is inherent within the gospel. We know we are in Christ because we have embraced a um, apostolic, a biblical presentation of the truth that is in Christ. And we know that we are in Christ because we become worshipers in spirit and in truth, which is the way Jesus himself prescribed worship to be done. Now, you wouldn't know that, though. When you think of worship today, oftentimes you consider on a Sunday morning, you'll see churches all over town that have on their reader boards, worship, 10 a.m. or some other time, but worship. And what you discover is that the Presbyterians have their form of worship, the Lutherans have their form of worship, the Methodists have their form of worship, the Catholics and the Greek Orthodox have their form of worship, the Anglicans have a similar form of worship, the Charismatics certainly have their own design of worship, and many evangelical Charismatic or, or megachurches have a similar form of worship to that. So, is that worship? Is worship actually going on there? These are the questions that we have to ask if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission, if we're going to be um, a resource for, as a church for broken, hurting sinners who are lost and searching uh, and being drawn by the Father to his Son so that we can be faithful 
and presenting a biblical gospel to these people that is life-giving, that is healing, that is brings wholeness into their life, sets the captive free. And that's an exciting prospect. The issue is, the obstacle to that, of course, is having to identify everything that is not that, because the world is filled with counterfeit Christianity, counterfeit worship, and counterfeit gospels. So we must be somewhat astute. We must contend, as Jew says, for the for the faith that was once delivered, once for all, delivered to God's holy people. So this series, based on 1 Samuel 15, is going to be very important end uh, purpose to that end. We're going to examine this. I've been looking at this text for some time. I've been exegeting it. I've been careful to meditate on it, to review it, to read a few commentaries, to make care- be careful that I am, in fact, giving you uh, the intent, the author's intended meaning here. Uh, you don't need one more opinion, God forbid. You don't need one more person on the on the radio or sermon audio or Spotify or some other podcast or uh, telling you their, their happy opinion about what the gospel says. Uh, you need the truth. Seriously need the truth. And I know that because I need the truth. And so, uh, and we are not unalike on that point. So we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 15, this, this amazing story. But let me ask you, by way of introduction to this uh, series, a few questions. What if your pastor, elders, and Christian tradition were suddenly found guilty of witchcraft and promoting false religion, even idolatry? How would you respond? Let me ask that question again. What if your pastor, your elders, and your whole Christian tradition were found guilty of witchcraft and promoting false religion and idolatry? How would you respond? In shock? Horror? Grief? Dismay? What if you were discovered that the worship that's been prescribed to you most of your Christian life is, in fact, false worship? A worship that God rejects. What if I were to tell you that most of what calls itself conservative evangelicalism is, in fact, on this point, bewitched? These are serious things. Paul told the Galatians, O oh, you foolish Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, who has bewitched you that you should no longer believe the truth? It is possible for genuine believers, those who are in Christ, to come under the influence of false teaching, false gospels, false counterfeit Christianity, and become what Paul would call as bewitched. Now, that doesn't mean that you're walking around in a trance, that you're somehow um, uh, uh, spouting green gunk from your mouth or some kind of exorcism. 
cynicism uh, situation. No. Uh, he's simply saying you're deceived. There's been a bewitching influence that come in, has come into your life that served as an obstacle that has waylaid you from embracing the truth. And this is something we all must be discerning of. It's something we all must guard against. Not everything, I think you will agree, not everything that calls itself Christianity is Christianity. And the Lord Jesus Christ, our risen Lord, in the gospel itself is so precious and such a treasure that we must be willing to guard it. We must be willing to guard our fellowship with the Father and the Son and worship in spirit and in truth and be, as God would have us to be, discerning and utterly rejecting of any kind of counterfeit. Now, if you're a good American, or if you're in the, living in the West at all, you're, you're probably a little uncomfortable already with what I'm saying. Because we are in an age of tolerance. We are in a pluralistic society, meaning we're living in a society that counts all religion as being of equal value and use to a, an individual or a group. And, and, and the problem is this, um, we simply can't just give in to that. We can't, we can't simply say, well, you know, I don't want to stand out. I don't want, and, but the day is coming. The day is coming when um, we will have to take a stand. And if we don't, we're going to fall. We're going to go into this state of bewitchment. Um, so, we don't want to go there. So, what if I were to tell you that most of what calls itself conservative evangelicalism is, in fact, bewitched? Uh, I'm not the only one who has said that. Other evangelical leaders have said that, that, that we have a problem, that we are under an influence. So, by the time we end this series, we will discover a direct connection between the rebellion of Saul and the people, and most of what calls itself Christianity today, will find a direct connection between the, the rebellion or the sin of Saul, as revealed in 1 Samuel 15, and the counterfeit worship, largely energized by the angel of light himself, designed to waylay you from becoming those worshipers the Father seeks. That is to say, those who worship in spirit and in truth. So, let's get started by reading today. Now, what I'm going to do, this is going to be a series. So, today will be largely an overview. An overview of where, where we're going and what we're about. That's already begun. And then uh, what I'm going to do today is give you a introduction to the text. We're going to read the text. Uh, this is going to be an in-depth study, so you want to kind of dig in. Uh, if you're looking for devotional um, uh, recordings, then you might want to look someplace else. This is not going to be a, um, a, a minimal effort. This is not going to be a, a devotional brief 
um, feel good moment, and then you move on with your your day. Uh, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound harsh, but but that's pretty much what most Christians today live with. They they have a brief moment of devotion, usually read out of a devotional, uh, where they get a passage largely written out of ripped, ripped out of context. They read somebody's take on that text, uh, two or three paragraphs. They get a sense of feel good, and then they go on with their day. But they're not growing spiritually. They're not maturing in Christ, let alone being equipped to walk in uh, maturity and in the Spirit. So these are serious times, folks. This is uh, uh, times that we have to consider what we're doing, and we have to be willing to pause. We have to be willing to examine ourselves, to see if we are in Christ, and and if what we're doing is approved of, of, of God, uh, we are to examine ourselves, to study, to see if we are in the faith. And if we're not willing to do that, then we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to any gust of wind that comes in up by the cunning design of men seeking to uh, waylay you or to push you into slavery and to rob you of the spiritual birthright of, of genuine righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So, let's get started. Let's begin then by looking at 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 35. 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 35. Let me do something here real quick, get this off of my computer so I don't have to look at it anymore. <laughs> Be distracted. Okay, so I'm reading from the uh, New American Standard, by the way, just if you want to follow along. New American Standard, the 2020 update. Uh, and so we'll begin at verse 1, of course. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies says, quote, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel and that he obstructed or waylaid him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and completely destroy everything that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and counted them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. But Paul said to the Kenites, quote, Go get away, get down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they went up from Egypt. So the Kenites got away from among the Amalekites. Then Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah going toward Shore, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agog, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and completely destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Paul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep, 
the oxen, the more valuable animals, the lambs, and everything that was good, and were unwilling to destroy them completely. But everything despicable and weak, that they completely destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, quote, I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned back from following me and not has not carried out my commands. End quote. And Samuel was furious and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel got up early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was reported to Samuel, saying, quote, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. End quote. So Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, quote, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. End quote. But Samuel said, quote, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the bellowing of the oxen which I hear? End quote. Saul said, quote, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God but the rest we have completely destroyed. End quote. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop and let me inform you of what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. So Samuel said, Is it not true that though you were insignificant in your own eyes that you became the head of the tribes of Israel? For the Lord anointed you as king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are eliminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Instead, you loudly rushed upon the spoils and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord, for I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I have brought Agog, the king of Amalek, and I have completely destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things designated for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, Does the Lord have as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as reprehensible as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as reprehensible as false religion and idolatry. Since you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. End quote. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have violated the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. 
Now then, please pardon my sin and return with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Then Samuel turned to go, but Saul grasped the edge of his robe and tore it off. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also the glory of Israel will not lie nor change his mind, for he is not a man that he would change his mind. Then Saul said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before all Israel and go back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back, following Saul, and and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is gone. But Samuel said, As your sword... As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel cut Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gilbeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul until the day of his death, though Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. End quote. Well, may the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his holy and fully inspired word. Amen. So this is a narrative revealing God's standard for worship and his rejection of all false worship. And false worship, not necessarily meaning that rank, glory, and glaring paganism, but that which is by all appearances genuine, but is in fact no different in God's eyes than witchcraft and idolatry. Let me say that again. This is a narrative revealing God's standard for worship in his rejection of all false worship. And I don't mean necessarily that rank, glaring paganism or even the worship of the occults or the worship of the cults, but that which is by all appearance genuine worship, but is in fact no different in God's eyes than witchcraft and idolatry. Because it's a worship that is by definition counterfeit. It's a worship that is grounded in what is mostly true. It's a worship of the right God in the wrong way. God has no interest in almost or mostly, or good intentions, or close, 
God's interested in that we obey his commands. And the essence of obedience, and hear me now, the essence of obedience is seeing things as God sees them and then acting accordingly. The essence of obedience, especially in worship, is seeing things as God sees them and then acting accordingly. We don't have the right to do most of what God commands and then decide we'll do whatever we want beyond that. We don't have a right to negotiate with God on the basis of some false paradigm of essentials and non-essentials. That's a phrase that came about during the ecumenical reign and uh, and the origins of this movement where everybody was trying to find unity apart from the unity of the Spirit. They were trying to find doctrinal unity. They couldn't find unity based upon their own and diverse and uh, many forms of false worship. So they, they had to find some essentials that they could say, well, we're in unity, but it wasn't a unity of the Spirit. It isn't, wasn't the unity that was defined in the New Testament. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father, and God of all, and one Spirit. And it's this last piece, the, the Spirit, that gets left out. Since probably the second or third century when the hierarchy was formed after Constantine, probably after Constantine, 313 AD is when he gave the Edict of Milan, meaning that, that Christianity was now being tolerated in the Roman Empire, which was then became another form of persecution inasmuch that it redefined it. So then the hierarchy was set up among um, bishops oversaw by what was called metropolitans and, and priests and deacons. Basilicas were built, cathedrals were built, sacred buildings were restored, a sacrificing Levitical priesthood was restored. In other words, everything that God destroyed in 70 AD in Jerusalem was be reenacted, rebuilt by Constantine in his institutionalization of Christianity. That's the beginnings. That's just the beginnings of what we know today as institutionalized Christianity and its false worship. Well, before we go any further then, let me point you to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we want to have a good overview of this text because it's very important text. I mean, I've, I've read this story, I've heard it preached on before, and it's always presented as uh, Agog as being our, our loved sins, our, our cherished faults, and things that we don't want to give up. Uh, and I guess there's an aspect to it, but that's, that's not the central point of this text. The central point of this text is that God utterly rejects false worship. And he doesn't care if it's 80% right. He doesn't care 
to, to he's not impressed with 90% right. He's, he's interested in being, us being obedient to his command to worship in spirit and in truth. He's not interested in our own design for worship. He's not interested in a cultural standard for worship. He's not interested in what's popular when it comes to worship. He's not interested in the cultural trends in music, in Christian professional musicians, and and all that goes with it. He's not interested in those who earn Dove Awards. God's interested in obedience as the primary characteristic of authentic worship in spirit and in truth. But I digress. (laughs) It's easy to do on this topic. Let's look at how we are to view this text based upon Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There Paul says this, quote, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and they all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for their bodies were spread out in the wilderness. Now listen carefully. Now these things happened as examples for us so they would, we would not crave evil things as they indeed craved them. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor are we to commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor are we to put the Lord to the test, as some of them did, and were killed by the snakes. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let the one who thinks he stands watch out, that he does not fall. No temptation is overtaking you except something common to mankind. And God is faithful, so he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. End quote. So Paul is saying here, that everything that was written in the Old Testament was written to us as an example, so that we, as instructions, so that we do not follow those patterns. He's telling us that we ought not be idolaters, that we ought not commit sexual immorality, that we ought not uh, put the Lord to the test, nor grumble. These things were written for our instruction upon whom the end, ends of the ages have come. And then he instructs us very, very pastorally 
Let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. This is what I mean when it's saying we have to make sure that if we're going to be whole, we're going to take have the full benefit of the gospel in healing us of our brokenness. Not just, just not uh, from the penalty of sin, but the pollution of sin. So that we're mentally and even physically functional. I'm not talking about health, wealth, and prosperity, so you know me better than that. Anybody who knows me knows I don't go there. In fact, I think the charismatics are absolutely guilty of the sin of Saul when it comes to false worship. Okay, so that said, but there is a shalom for God's people. There is a peace, righteousness, peace, and joy that are yours by birthright. And one of the leading obstacles, one of the leading things that waylay you, just like the the Amalekites, sought to waylay Israel as he, as he was coming up, as they were coming up out of Egypt, is this false worship, which is so very prevalent. Okay, so I'm only going to hit on one point here today, and then we'll pick it up in part two from there. So let's look at our text, 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're looking at this as an example now, written for our instruction and guidance, because the end of the ages have come. We are in the final days. We are in the last days. We've been in the last days since the time of Christ's resurrection. And if their last days began then, how much closer are we to those end times than we are now? Uh, so then, then I should say, now. So, so we ought to be alert. We ought to be sober-minded. 1 Samuel 15. Uh, Let's look at the text briefly here. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Now, you remember that God himself said, I am your king to Israel. I am the great king. He is God himself intended to be their king. But the people looked around and saw the other nations having kings literal kings, people they could touch and see, and, and, the, and their faith was so weak, their, their eyes were so dim that they couldn't see Yahweh as their king. And so they demanded a king. And Samuel was not happy, but they demanded a king. And God consoled Samuel and said, Don't worry, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So give them a king. So uh, Samuel was chosen, uh, God chose Samuel, excuse me, Saul, and Samuel anointed Saul king. Okay. And so now there's a time when God is going to give a commission to Saul. Therefore, listen to the word of the Lord in verse 2. This is what the Lord of armies says, quote, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel and that he obstructed him on, uh, interesting that he uses the word in a singular, isn't it? That he obstructed him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and completely destroy everything that he has and do not spare him. Put put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. End quote. 
Now, God's command to Saul was clear. That's the important point here. There was nothing left unclear. There was nothing left for Saul to have to figure out. There wasn't God was not speaking through Samuel in code talk. There was nothing left for, for Saul to have to walk around the, the, the bonfire, scratching his head, saying, I wonder what God meant about that. No, it's very clear. Amalek represents, remember this is an example to us, Amalek represents a people or those forces in the world that are absolutely, unequivocally, undeniably, always will be opposed to God's redemptive purposes. So if we get a little, if our scruples are a little violated here by the fact that God's calling for the complete destruction of a people, remember the fact that we are dealing here with spiritual warfare. We're dealing with spiritual forces incarnated through a people, demonic spiritual forces that have only one purpose, and that is to waylay, obstruct, and thwart God's redemptive purposes in the world. And, and, and it was so pervasive that any generation of the Amalekites would have continued to do that. So, you can't leave one of these people alive. You can't leave one of the you can't leave any group of these people alive to reproduce and continue the legacy of being Satan's instrument in the world to oppose God's redemptive purposes. Now you can read in Exodus 17, 8 through 16 about what is being referred to here. And so let's look at that, and then we'll begin to wrap this up for today. Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Just a few verses. Exodus 17, 8 through 16. I'll read these. Quote, then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did, just as Moses told him. There we go, obedience. And fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. But when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. And Moses' hands were heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands on one uh, one on one side and one on the other. So his hands were steady until the sun set. And Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly wipe out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have, the, have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So the battles began with Amalek there. As the people came up out of Israel, as God was leading Israel out of 
Egypt by Moses. Amalek, the Amalekites uh, opposed them, and they were going to oppose them. They were going to do everything in their power to stop God's redemptive purposes in Christ, by the way, of being worked out through Israel. So God said, we're not done here. We've defeated him today, but we're not done here. There will come a day when I will need to deal with them from generation to generation. So we're going to put an end to the whole people. They are a generation of people who are so utterly demonically opposed to the work of God that they will never be anything but that. We must end them entirely. Again, now don't get too concerned about our scruples today. This sounds harsh. It sounds brutal. It sounds like uh, something we wouldn't want to see happen in the world today. But we're talking here about spiritual warfare. That's the context. I mean, these forces in the world, had God allowed them to continue out of some kind of sentimentality, out of some kind of, oh, gee, we don't want to have to wipe out everyone, then they would have continued to oppose Israel. They would have continued to oppose God's redemptive purposes. And uh, it would have been ugly. If God did not quickly, swiftly, and decisively deal with evil in its human incarnate state, it would have been a horrible thing. We would not be here today. So, Let's let's begin at this very point to do the thing that I suggested we do, that obedience is learning to see things through God's eyes. God had your redemption. You who are in Christ, God had your redemption in mind when he ordered Saul to destroy the Amalekites. God saw your redemption as precious and he wasn't going to allow anything to thwart it. That's the best view that you can have of this story. So, we can, cons- we can conclude then that God's redemptive purpose is certain, infallible, and no one, including the Amalekites, can successfully thwart it. Let me say that again. God's redemptive purpose is certain. It's infallible. It will come to pass. And no one can successfully thwart it. Nonetheless, wicked people, energized by Satan himself, have never ceased to pervert the purposes of God. Let me say that in a singular. The purpose of God. Both externally and internally. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. Externally means by direct opposition, physical persecution, where they kill the body. Physical persecution through starvation, through uh, uh, torture, through uh, arrest, through seizing your, your possessions, causing you to be homeless, by um, incarcerating you, that's external opposition. And that's bad enough, but then there's internal, and I don't mean inside of us, I mean internal within the community of God themselves. 
people, men and women who rise up within the community of faith, who are agents of Satan, who bring false teaching, false worship, false gospels, and thus corrupt and distort and pervert and adulterate the word of God, and in this context, produce false worship. So in the end, all opposition, external and internal, will be utterly destroyed. This is, this is a clear call for you today to ask what side of this issue are you on? Are you on God's side? Are you prepared to utterly destroy anything in your life that would lead you to false worship? Are you prepared to utterly reject, destroy, if you will, anything that would cause you to embrace false worship? We'll talk about in the next episode the characteristics of that false worship, so I hope you stick with me. Let me just assure you here, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, by the way, of the, how things will be, anything that opposes Christ's purposes now, we're under the new covenant, we're in the new covenant era. Nonetheless, there are those who still oppose God. They still promote false worship. He says, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is only fitting, because your faith is increasingly abundantly and, and the love of each and every one of you toward another grows ever greater, ever greater. As a result, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions, the external persecutions, and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you indeed are suffering. For after all, it is only right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. This is serious business, folks. I mean, if you're interested in playing church, you're in trouble. If you're interested in just being a nice Christian, you're in trouble. You have to understand that you're in a shooting war. The devil's not out to make you uncomfortable. He's out to kill you. And if you don't aren't prepared to kill that which would kill you, it will kill you. Now, I understand that we're using destruction here and killing and so on, and I'll that language in a metaphoric manner, but it's nonetheless true. These people will pay, and Paul's not using that here as a metaphor. He's speaking of literal destruction. These people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified among his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believed 
because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we also, also we pray for you always, that our God will consider you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire with goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him in accordance with the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, there's coming a day, he goes on in chapter 2, to warn of the great apostasy that is coming. And not to be disturbed by some though who are sending out letters, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if it is from us, he says. Think of that. As early as the apostolic mission into Asia Minor, there were already satanically energized forces, people at work, counterfeiting the apostles' mission to the point that they were writing letters and signing it Paul. And these letters were getting to the churches and disturbing the people because they were filled with things that Paul was not teaching. And they were confused. They were disturbed. Some were offering prophecies that were contrary to what Paul was teaching. Or messages, preaching that was contrary to what Paul taught. And so they were confusing the churches. And one of those letters taught that the day of the Lord had already come. No one is to deceive you in any way, he says. Verse 3, For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Paul says, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? See? Please listen to me in this series. Uh, I, I'm, only, I'm only an heir to what Paul was saying. I'm only trying to communicate to you the clear word of God. I have no personal agenda. I have no personal opinion. I have no personal stake in this. I'm trying to advance some kind of secret agenda or anything else. I simply want you to be the beneficiary of the fullness and the power of the word of God. And Paul is saying here very clearly that he spent time warning them and telling about, about these things. And that's what we're doing in this series. We're helping you identify and understand the nature of false worship and its character and its prevalence and how you must come away from it. You must come out of it. That God has appointed a day that with the return of our Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, and he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And these people will pay with eternal destruction. In the meantime, eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord, by the way, in the meantime, these people are happy to deceive you, happy to counterfeit their Christianity. They're happy to sell you on their counterfeit worship. And that's what happened with Saul. We'll see in the next episode. What happened with Saul is that he got caught up in trying to please the people and, sat and satisfy the greed of the people and satisfy his own need for honor and approval 
and ended up compromising God's mission. And then he went so far as to delude himself into thinking that he had actually accomplished it. Because after all, he had accomplished most of it. He had almost done what God wanted him to do. And so surely there'd be a little grace. Surely there'd be a little room for negotiation. Surely, you know, we have the essentials of the gospel in our tradition. So who cares if we practice a bunch of other things in our worship that are unbiblical? Because after all, we have the essentials. We do it pretty much right. Well, I'm here to tell you that the day is coming and now is where God is going to make his wrath known against that kind of worship. And I would not want you to be a part of it. I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want my wife and family to be a part of it. But we are living in a day when false and counterfeit worship from both from the charismatic world and from the Protestant traditionalists are so prevalent that we're living with these people who are selling us an almost gospel. They're selling us a message that's mostly gospel. That's kind of the gospel. Just enough language and terminology so that it sounds like the gospel. A lady not long ago told me, well, my pastor preaches from the Bible. You see where this goes? We have to be more discerning. We have to go deeper than that. We have to be willing to say, yes, but what does he preach from the Bible? What is his paradigm? What is he preaching the context? Is he preaching the whole counsel of God? Or is he just ripping passages out of context and selling you his own interest in order to satisfy his own personal interests? So these are serious things. There's a very serious, but there's good news in this too, beloved. I want to end you on an up note here. What I, the goal of this series is not just to expose and help you come to grips with the very sobering reality of false worship within the evangelical world, both charismatic and Protestant, but to also ensure that you know that you're among those worshipers whom the Father seeks. That is to say, those who worship in spirit and in truth. That's the goal of this series, so that you have the assurance, the joy, the delight, the glory of knowing that you are named among those worshipers whom the Father seeks, those who worship in spirit and in truth. So to the degree that false worship is symptomatic of institutionalized unbelief. It's a rejection of God's word in favor of self-willed interest and the approval of people. We want to be careful to move away from it because it's clear that God, the presumption of many Christian leaders today is that God gives us all kinds of latitude 
As long as we believe that Jesus is his son, and we believe in the virgin birth, and we believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, which are all very important, don't get me wrong, as long as we have some basic doctrinal essentials, then God gives us all this latitude. Because Saul, think about it, Saul killed all the people. He killed all the Amalekites. He did what God told him to do. He just didn't kill Agag, the king. <laughs> the primary propagator of opposition to Israel, he, he kept alive. And God said, destroy all their livestock. And he did. He destroyed the weak and the, and the diseased, but he kept all the good livestock. And says that they loudly went after the spoils. They were celebrating while they were gathering up all the good things. The things that God said, you will worship me on the day that you utterly destroy everything. So don't bother bringing back all the good livestock and keeping Agag alive and then coming back and, and uh, justifying it by saying, well, we were going to offer this livestock to you and worship God and say, we're going to sacrifice them to you and, and, and worship that's not what God commanded. And God's not interested in anything less than perfect obedience to his commands. The good news for you and I is that the day came when there was one who kept his commands in perfect obedience. And you and I who are in Christ are in him, Jesus Christ. And it's his perfect obedience his character, his thinking, his spirit that now dwells within us and is being worked out in our lives so that we not only have the imputed perfect righteousness of Christ, but that very perfect righteousness is being actually worked out in our character so that we are being conformed into the image of the one who perfectly obeyed Jesus. And as Romans 8, 3 and 4 says that the whole work of Christ was accomplished so that we, the, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So next time we'll talk more about what this false worship looked like for Saul and more detailed what are the characteristics of those who propagate this false worship and how you can identify it, discern it, and separate from it so that you are uh, pleasing to God in your worship instead and find the righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, which is your birthright, and go on to maturity and wholeness, a sense of identity and purpose and hope that is God's will for you in his Son. Until then... May the Lord strengthen you and keep you in his grace. Amen.